three, two, one. Welcome to Tiger Camel. I'm your host, Mohamed Shirah. Thank you for joining us. This podcast covers personal finance, professional growth, and paying it forward. We release a new episode on Wednesdays. Today, I'd like to talk about market volatility. Let's first define a few key terms for our discussion. Strictly speaking, market volatility is a statistical measure of the dispersion of returns for a given security or market index. In everyday language, volatility refers to the movement of the price of a stock, a segment of the market, or the entire market in general. And when I say the market, we're usually referring to the stock market as represented by the major exchanges, the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ being the two biggest ones in the U.S., There are other large exchanges in the world, Tokyo, Shanghai, Hong Kong, and London stock exchanges, just to name a few. In the U.S., US, most folks use the S&P 500 as a proxy for the wider market. As the name implies, the S&P 500 is comprised of 500 or so of the largest companies in the U.S. by market capitalization. The real number is actually around 505 individual stocks, but I suppose around 500 for historical reasons is the number that, or the name that it's been stuck, but the real number fluctuates more or less around 500. Now that we've gotten that background out of the way, let's dive deeper into the topic of today, market volatility. The volatility or price movement of the market is made up of the price movement of the individual stocks that make up that market. And I'm using market here in quotation marks. In essence, each individual stock moves based on things that are specific to that stock and that company, as well as things that are specific to the general industry or sector that that stock is in. And then you have all of the other wider externalities, things that are more macro, tariffs, geopolitical concerns, and all the rest of it. The market, though, goes up and it goes down. But the data shows that it goes up way more often than it goes down. Let's look at some data. According to data compiled for the S&P 500 covering the period 1948 to 2017, the market has, on average, declined 5% or more three times a year. So on average, Three times a year, the market has declined 5% or more, market being the S&P 500. The market has declined 10% or more on average once a year, 20% or more once every six years. Exact average is 6.3 years. So what that shows you is pullbacks or declines of the market in the 5 to 10% range are fairly common. I think it's safe to say that if something is happening once a year, you can say it's common. If it's happening three times a year, that's pretty normal. So I want you to keep that in mind the next time you hear the talking heads or you see something in print that says the market has tumbled, the Dow takes a nosedive, and keep in mind the numbers they use. They will say the Dow is down 500 points, and you're like, oh my God, 500 but if they were to tell you the Dow's down less than 1%, you'd be like, nah, 
1%. So always keep in mind when you're consuming media, especially ones relating to the financial markets, it's their job to rile you up and to play up any movement that happens in the market. But know that declines of 5 to 10% are pretty common. And 20%, although more rare, also happens about every six years. Now, if we go back to 1932, market declines of 15% or more have been followed by an average 12-month return of 55% for the S&P 500. What that means is, if the market goes down, historically speaking, if you were to invest at the low, the average return would be 55% higher than what you had invested. What matters here is the takeaway that though the market declines, there's almost always followed by significant recovery. Might not happen almost immediately, might take some time, but eventually the market recovers and continues to go up. Data compiled for bull and bear markets from 1949 to 2014 shows that the average return of a bull market, meaning periods where the market is going up, have been 263% and have lasted for 71 months on average. So the average bull market returns 263% and runs for 71 months. The average bear market, that is periods where the market is down, have only lasted about 14 months with an average decline of 33%. In practical terms, here's what an example that uses these averages would look like. Say you had invested $1,000 into a bear market. So the market went down after you had invested $1,000 and it declined by that average that we just mentioned of 33%. You would be left with $670. If you had the same $1,000 invested and you experienced a bull market, you would have $2,630. That's the downside comparing it to the upside. The data that I shared comes from a 2019 article on capitalgroup.com titled Correction or Bear? Six Charts that Explain Bear Markets. It's very important to understand that volatility is one of the key functions that drive the market. It's volatility and how people choose to react to it that causes others to create enormous wealth as investors and others to see the market as nothing more than a casino or something to be feared. In the accumulation phase of your life, that is the time when you're building wealth, you're investing and preparing for your future. You want to see volatility as an opportunity to buy great companies at a discount. It's really fascinating how the human mind works. If we see a store whose merchandise we love, and we see that store run a huge sale event where our favorite items are going for steep discounts, we don't think twice about going into, into that store and buying many of the items that we've been eyeing this whole time. But if the stock price of a business that we believe in and that we love experiences a pullback and declines. Instead of seeing it as a buying opportunity, a chance to buy a great company at a discount, many of us head for the nearest exit. Here are a few tips to use volatility to your advantage. Number one, money you need in the next 
three to five years does not belong in the market. As I had mentioned earlier, a bear market can run for a significant period of time. The very worst thing you can do is to have a market decline coincide with right when you need the money. So any money that you need for the next three to five is the usual advice, kind of rule of thumb. You can go to the five side if you're a more conservative person, the three side if you're a bit more of a high risk tolerant individual. But any amount that you need within a short period of time, maybe you're saving for a down payment on a house, you have a big ticket item purchase coming up, saving for a wedding, any amount that has a specific date for things that you really can't move, you don't want it in the market. Number two, take appropriate risk for the returns you need. The usual advice given is to first determine your risk tolerance and then invest according to that. And I think that's backwards because who really wants risk? People want to reduce risk as much as possible. That's why we wear seatbelts. That's why we get coverage. That's why we live in the safest neighborhoods that we can afford. You want to reduce the risk of something catastrophic happening to you. So when you tell someone, think of the amount of risk you want to take on and then invest accordingly, you're essentially causing that person to perceive danger. What's I think more effective is to say, determine the level of return you need. In other words, what is the goal? How much are you looking to build? How much do you want to make in the market? How much wealth do you need to build in the market? And once you understand that number, then work backwards from that and say, okay, what is the level of risk I'm willing to take to achieve this net worth? Then that will either cause you to reduce your net worth target because the level of risk that would be needed to achieve that, it's too high for you, or you would readjust your risk tolerance up or down based on the number that you need to achieve. So take appropriate risk for the returns you need. Number three, diversify your investments. No matter how much you love a company or two or three, you should not be that concentrated. If you are investing in individual stocks, try to grow that to a reasonable number. Reasonable number is usually 20 to 30 is what experts recommend. You can certainly get more, but you want to be diversified, not just in the number of companies you hold, but the sectors that those companies themselves operate in. In other words, if you buy 30 companies, but they're all tech stocks, well, they're all correlated and they're going to move in the same way. So that's why you want to diversify number-wise, as well as the industries that you're investing in. Number four, know what you own and own what you know. If you know what you own and why you purchased that company, it is much more likely that you will hold on to that company even under periods of market turbulence, where that company might decline a significant amount but you have studied the company, you know why you've purchased stock in that company. You believe in that company. You have a thesis for that company. So know what you own. It'll make you a more resilient investor. Own what you know means oftentimes people are worrying about what other hot stock should I invest in. But a lot of times, the very best stock for you to invest in is one that you already know and one that you already own. So look at the winners within your portfolio over a sufficient period of time, there will emerge some losers and some winners, especially if you believe if you invest in individual stocks. Study the fundamentals of those winners. And if you believe they still have room to grow, then invest in those. Number five, keep your eye on the horizon. You are not a Wall Street investor. 
You're not a money manager. You're not managing anyone else's money. You have the longest time horizon possible. Think in years, if not decades, not in quarters. It almost doesn't matter what a company does in the short term. If you believe and you understand the fundamentals of that company, tune out the noise of the day-to-day. The best analogy that I've heard about ownership in stocks was from Warren Buffett himself, where he told a group of us, essentially I'm paraphrasing here, if you owned a house, and imagine every morning you woke up and flashing on the screen was the value of that particular house, would you want that? And the answer is no, I don't care. I live in this house, I'm not going anywhere. Why do I need to find out the value of this house on a day-by-day basis? I like the area, I know what's going on in the neighborhood, and if I ever do decide to move, then that's what I'll consider the price of the house. But for right now, it really doesn't matter because I'm getting use out of it. Owning a great company is the same way. It almost doesn't matter the price of that company at any given moment in the short term. What matters is, is the company, the fundamentals, the business itself performing, which leads us to point number six. That is, the price of the stock is not necessarily a true reflection of the company's fundamentals. It is absolutely possible and happens that a great company that's performing, that's growing both top and bottom line, could also have a lackluster or flat stock price over significant periods of time. It's also possible for a company that's really delivering growth, monumental growth, to have pullbacks of 90% or so, as Amazon has had in its past and many other eventual winners have had in their past. So the stock price is driven by a lot of things, including human folly. The fundamentals of the company can be assessed much more scientifically. They need to be given enough time to play out. Benjamin Graham, the father of value investing and one of the greatest investors, certainly of his time, if not of all time, and teacher of Warren Buffett, captured this distinction succinctly when he said, The idea of measuring investment risks by price fluctuations is repugnant to me for the very reason that it confuses what the stock market says with what actually happens to the owner's stake in the business. And that's what you are as an investor. You are an owner in the business. What you care about is how the business is performing, the cash flow of the business, the growth of the business, the operational leverage of the business, not what someone on Wall Street thinks the business is worth today and is willing to buy and sell for it. Think years, if not decades. That's our episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening. If you find the content helpful, share with your friends and family. If you'd like to submit questions, topic ideas, or feedback for the show, our email address is tieyourcamel14 at gmail.com. That's tieyourcamel14 at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Till next time, go tie your camel.